Since the beginning of uh, Christianity, there have been a number of men and women of the Lord whose service and work for the Lord has been an inspiration for many people. Their lives have set a pattern. Their ministry has set a, a standard by which we measure ourselves and really established principles that have shaped churches and ministry and missions and all sorts of things throughout all of time. We look to them, we read their biographies, we pattern ourselves after their life, after their conduct, and in some cases, even after their methods. But among all those great saints, none is greater and none is more impactful than the Apostle Paul. Over 2,000 years, it is still his life and his ministry which most dominates what we do and the way we do ministry and, and uh, church and missions and all those things. Which is really amazing if you think about how little we know about him. No one really attempted to even write a biography of Paul until hundreds of years after his death, until all that we really had, all that we knew of him anymore, were simply the few snippets and facts that we could glean from the pages of Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you were to gather together, apart from all of the doctrinal discussion, apart from all of the... uh, the discussion about theology, if you were to piece together all the little personal references and, and uh, insights that Paul gives about his own life and about his own ministry throughout all of his letters and maybe through the book of Acts, you could probably jot it all down on just one or two pages. And so it's really remarkable to think that a man for whom we know so little would really impact us so much. Whose life goes far beyond some of those men whose lives have been recorded in volumes as a biography. It's just a few pages, just a few statements by the Apostle Paul that have so shaped us. The reason for that is, of course, that his statements come in Scripture. And we know that Scripture is inspired by God. And so we know that it has been included by God for our benefit. That God saw fit to deliver to us our New Testament theology and everything we understand about our doctrine in the form of letters, personal letters written by a real individual in real situations, and in the course of those letters, he would give small greetings and, uh, and small benedictions, little snippets and tidbits from his own life and ministry that the Lord wanted us to have because he wanted us to have that insight, those particular verses, some peak into the life, into the ministry of this man who was so sound-minded in his judgment and theology and so spirit-filled in his life that he becomes something of a pattern, something of a model for us to follow in our own ministry 
in our own church, in our own missions, in our own work, no matter what you do in serving the Lord. Well, today we come to one of those brief passages, one of those rare little passages in 1 Corinthians 16. Just a few statements by the Apostle Paul, but in it are embedded some principles. He's really giving essentially just footnotes, if you will, of his travel plans, what he intends to do or what he would like to do. And he's just writing this to the church to inform them and let them know of what might be happening or what's going to happen. But behind everything that he says, I believe we can discern some principles. We can discern some lessons on Paul's leadership style, some lessons on his methods and his ministry that come to us with great benefit and help us to know how this one man became so effective in planting so many churches in so many areas across so many years. How he launched uh, uh, disciples and leaders that would change a generation. Leadership lessons from the Apostle Paul from these few verses that sort of Uh, come in this final chapter of Corinthians, tacked on from Paul's personal notes, but given to us by inspiration from God. This is what he writes in verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. We'll stop right there. This is Paul giving just a few notes about his ministry plans, a few notes about what he's going to do. And why he's going to do it. And they bring to us a couple of important lessons from his own approach, from his own leadership, that we would do well to keep in mind if we want to be used by the Lord in similar fashion. And I think the first one comes to us in verses 5 through 7, when Paul really outlines his flexibility in his planning, his flexibility in his planning. And to say that Paul was flexible in his planning, of course, implies that he had a plan. Like every great servant of the Lord, like every effective minister of the Lord, Paul was a planner. In other words, he would look out across the landscape of the church. He would look out across all the people among whom he worked And he would see these needs, needs that were immediately in front of him that moment, that day, that that week or whatever it might be. But then he would look beyond those and he would see other needs that, that, that ought to be met, needs that need to be met. And he would begin to plan. He would plan what time, in what way, in what order and with what resources He was going to meet those needs. Sometimes it was just a 
couple of weeks down the road. Sometimes it was a couple of months down the road. Sometimes it was years down the road. You read through Paul's letters and he writes to churches how he's going to visit them in a following year or even a year after that, how he's going to come their way and then by them be sent along another way to go to Judea or to go to Rome or even to go to Spain. And in varying circumstances, those plans took Paul Sometimes a year in the case of Judea, or two years in the case of Rome, or even five years or more in the case of Spain. It took him far down the road in the way that he wanted to try to meet all of these ministry needs. He was a planner. And as he planned, he thought about things like sequence. He thought about things like resources. He thought about things like priorities of need. He thought about things in terms of what is most effective at what particular time and in what particular way. And he would write to people and he would say to them, look, I'm going to come to you at this particular time and I'm going to need from you these particular resources so that I can go further down to meet these needs. Paul was a planner. He was a planner. Some people don't Imagine or don't think that somehow this is what a spirit-filled person does. In their minds, a spirit-filled person doesn't make a lot of plans. They just sort of float around from day to day or week to week, just sort of always reacting, responding, sort of wearing their heart on the sleeve and just, just going after whatever catches their fancy or their attention. But time spent in ministry will tell you that those are not the most effective leaders. And they're not the most effective ministers. The most effective ministers are those who can devise a well-thought-out and well-laid-out plan. But at the same time, while Paul was very much a planner, he was never married to his plan. In other words, he very clearly understood what the Scripture tells us That man sets his plan, and yet the Lord directs his steps. In other words, as he made his plans, Paul had a clear enough understanding that what he served then was not his plan. What he served was the Lord. And what drove him wasn't his plan. What drove him were the key principles that were really aimed at by the plan. In other words, what drove Paul was the preaching of the gospel. It was seizing ministry opportunities. It was being the most effective in the most effective way that he could. And so consequently, as he began to execute his plan and circumstances changed, Paul would change. Paul would adjust. Paul would demonstrate flexibility in how he executed or how he carried out his plan. Now here's one clear example for us in this passage. Paul's telling them, and you'll see it here in verse 5, he wants to come visit them. He wishes to do that. He'll pass, uh, he'll pass through Macedonia. Um, I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even in the winter, spend the winter with you so that you may help me on my way, my journey, wherever I may go. Paul has this 
has formulated this plan to come and minister to the Corinthian church and also to the Macedonian church. And he knew it would take him a great while to do it. But he had devised a way to get around to addressing all of these needs. And this was his plan. As a matter of fact, it might help you if you have your Bibles to flip to the back. Flip to the maps, which I know you probably never use. But this is a time that might be helpful. So just look at maybe one of the final maps in your Bible that would show the entire Mediterranean region and maybe even some of Paul's missionary journeys. And you just sort of take note of where he is and and what took place in his ministry. Paul was writing the book of Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is located in what's known in that day as Asia, what we refer to today as Turkey. So he's writing from Ephesus, and his desire is to move from Ephesus into Macedonia, and then eventually from Macedonia to come down to minister at Corinth. This was his desire. This would entail him to come probably across the Aegean Sea or maybe even up as he eventually went up through the inland and down Macedonia to Corinth. Along the way, he would minister to a number of churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Troas, over the course of a couple of years. And then he would stay in Corinth for the winter and have a good deal of time with them because you wouldn't travel on the ocean in the winter in those days. It was too treacherous. So, so sea navigation basically shuts down from November to, to March. That was his plan. His plan was to come through Macedonia and then eventually to arrive in Corinth. The problem in this was that Paul had apparently given them a different plan before. He had apparently given them a different plan. At some point, we don't know where, in some previous letter, Paul had written to them that he was going to come to them first, and then from them, travel up through Macedonia, and then come back down to them a second time, And then perhaps spend the winter with them. This was what Paul had laid out. This is what had set their expectation. And so consequently, they became offended. They thought that somehow they had been violated. They began to accuse Paul of being maybe deceptive. Or maybe untrustworthy. Or maybe one who vacillates. And doesn't know how to stick to a plan. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can probably look right across the page or flip a page. And right in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, you'll see that Paul has to come back and then address their disappointment. He says in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 1, I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come to you from Macedonia and to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? 
Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as, the, as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul goes on to say how his whole life has been one of integrity before them. And how they should recognize that. This was the problem of the Corinthian church. That they had no sense of flexibility. Because they had no clear discernment of priorities. In other words, when a plan was established, or even if it was established by the Apostle Paul, they suddenly became consumed with the plan. Or they became focused on the plan. Or they began to think that their whole existence now was to service the plan. Rather than what was their core driving priority, which was to service the gospel. Paul understood that. Like every great leader does, like every great minister does, like every great servant of the Lord does, when they're laboring in the work of the Lord, he understood that you make your plans, but the Lord directs your steps. He understood that you make your plans, but circumstances change. And when circumstances change, that you have to constantly reevaluate those circumstances in your plan in light of the priorities of the gospel that drive you. As a matter of fact, here in 1 Corinthians, you'll see this is clearly Paul's perspective. As he writes the entire section here, it's filled with these qualifiers. He can hardly make a statement without a qualifier. He says in verse 6, Perhaps I shall stay with you, or even later on, or even perhaps implied, perhaps even spend the winter with you, or there later at the end of verse 6, that you may help me wherever I may go. And in verse 7, I hope to spend some time with you. And even he ends that verse by saying, if the Lord permits. You hear this, just qualifiers, all perhaps this, wherever it might go, if this, I hope this, however the Lord permits. This is the way Paul thought, this is the way he spoke, this is the way he planned. So while he was like any good leader, and he would map out a plan, he clearly understood that circumstances that the Lord brings into your life and into your ministry may need to alter that plan. If you're going to be effective for the Lord. Now a lot of people don't get this. They, they, they map out a plan or they hear a plan. They become married to the plan. And when the plan changes, what happens? They, they lose it. And they get upset. I remember one of my first mission trips. I went to Eastern Europe. Went to Romania. And we were going as a baseball team. Back in those days, baseball was a part of the Olympics. And we had an opportunity to scrimmage the Romanian baseball team to help prepare them for their first Olympic Games. And so we had a number of college players and some guys like me who didn't really play baseball that well, but just tagged along because they needed a team. And we spent uh, really six months preparing for this. We practiced baseball together. We gathered equipment. We would go around to stores and ask them to donate bats and balls and gloves and catchers outfits and all those things and we packed up crates of stuff that we were going to use for our own 
uh, 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 participation, but also stuff that we were going to donate to the team. And we had these great, wonderful ideas of how we're going to just be generous to this uh, poor nation coming out of poverty. And we're going to open up avenues for ministry and all these things. So we got on the plane with great anticipation, arrived in Bucharest, but our luggage didn't arrive with us. So here we were on the ground, ready to play baseball with no gloves, no bats, no balls, nothing. Well, as you can imagine, there was some frustration, some questioning, some wondering, why? Why would we put in all that effort? Why would we put in all that, uh, you know, practice? Why would we go around and get all those donations? Why would we do all this? Then we get here and we can't even execute our plan. Well, within just a few hours, I think, we got word that, in fact, the Romanian country was not even going to send a baseball team to the Olympics or that they weren't formed or whatever it might be. But there was a handball team in the area, which I had never heard of. So we spent about an hour learning how to play handball and went out and basically ran around like a bunch of fools trying to help this uh, Romanian team practice their handball or whatever. And along the way, we were all amazed at how the Lord opened up the hearts of this handball team and how so many of them were so eager to not talk about Uh, sports or the olympics or anything like that they were so eager to hear about our lives and our ministry and was week as the week unfolded and we were talking to one another's team we were all saying you know this is amazing it's like we couldn't have planned it this way i mean this was this it's it's like it's like it was laid out from the beginning which of course it was just not by us i remember all that and i remember in the middle of it there was this one sour guy that for him, the week just couldn't get any worse. I mean, the food, the, the, the people, he just seemed like every day just got angrier and angrier. Until one day, he literally just disappeared. We didn't know where he was for a couple days. It was a scary situation. But in the midst of all that, we were seeing the Lord work. And it was just, in my mind, an early lesson of how you make a plan, but the Lord directs your steps. And if you want to be effective in ministry, if you want to be useful for the Lord, if you want to be one who makes disciples, you've got to realize that sometimes your plans will get set aside. That sometimes circumstances, sometimes needs, sometimes opportunities, sometimes crises or whatever it might be will be sent into your life and you have got to prioritize what you're called to well you've got to prioritize what the lord has entrusted to you making disciples at every turn you got to be flexible you got to be flexible this is what good leaders do this is what good workers do this is what good servants of the Lord do. They, they are definitely planners. But they understand their plans are not infallible. You do the best you can 
to make the best plans you can, to anticipate the most contingencies you can. But then when those contingencies change, you trust the Lord and adjust driven by the gospel. All that sort of takes us to a second principle in this passage. It really sort of defines Paul's life and ministry and ought to drive ours as well, which is being faithful in our present opportunities. It's being faithful in our present opportunities. Paul says in verse 8, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. This was the change. This was the change. He had apparently told them before he would come to them and then buy them, go up through Macedonia and come back down. Now he's telling them, I'm going to stay here to Pentecost. Why? Verse 9. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Paul says, I'm going to have to stay here longer than I originally intended to. Because a wide open door has opened. Paul spoke about his ministry a lot of times in in terms of a door, in terms of an open door. And, And people use that phrase. I hear it used all the time. They'll ask for prayer that a door would be open or they'll say that they're waiting for a door to open. They'll say that. And sometimes I I'm not quite sure what they mean when they say that. Because a lot of times the impression that I get is. For example, they say, you know, I, I want to I share the gospel with this person, you know, that I know at work or whatever. I want to share the gospel. I'm just kind of waiting on an open door. And I think what they mean is they want the person to come to them and say, how can I be a Christian? I, I believe that's what it is. Or they'll say, you know what, I'm just... I want to serve the Lord. I'm just waiting on some, some door to open. And what they mean is they want someone to come and, and, and maybe drop down to their knees and beg them to come and serve in whatever capacity. Or they want to find the right place that meets all their criteria and doesn't interfere with their schedule and doesn't create any kind of discomfort in them or doesn't require any kind of sacrifice or whatever it might be. But people are always seemingly waiting for open doors. We have to understand. And I think it's important for us to understand. When Paul talks about an open door. It's important for us to understand. What he is talking about. And we could begin by turning to the book of Revelation. And just looking at chapter 3. Revelation 3. In verse 7. It's one of the seven letters. Written to the church. Uh, this particular one, particular one written to the church at Philadelphia. And the Lord writes to them and he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Which, is not, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. 
He goes on to talk about their endurance in the midst of trials and how the Lord will continue to to honor their faithfulness. This is really, I think, the biblical concept of an open door. Doors that are open in the face of enemies. Or we might say it this way, an open door in the New Testament sense is the removal of barriers that men have put in place. An open door is the removal of man-made restrictions on preaching the gospel. And this is what the Lord is saying to this church. I'm the one who opens the doors. I'm the one who closes the doors. When I open them, no one can shut them. When I shut them, no one can open them. And this is what I'm going to do for you. Because you, in the midst of persecution, you've remained faithful. Because you, you have little strength. Or he says here, you have little power. And what I'm going to do then, is I'm going to open a door that you couldn't open. You don't have the resources. You don't have the power. You're not in control. And I'm going to open it. And particularly, it seems to be a reference to the synagogue of Satan in verse 9. These people who had been bringing persecution against the church, probably stirring up all kinds of, of uh, trouble, maybe even bringing against them um, uh, restrictions of some sort, perhaps locking some of them up, whatever it might be you see taking place by the Jews in the book of Acts, probably carried over here uh, again in, in the book of Revelation and the latter part of the first century, they were putting up barriers, they were putting up restrictions, they were putting up obstacles. And Paul's, excuse me, and, and, and the Lord is saying to them, I'm going to remove those obstacles. You don't have the power to do it, I'm going to do it. You're of little power, you're of little strength, I'm going to, I'm going to be your strength. And although you stood faithful against all their persecution. I'm going to open up a door for you for effective ministry. This is what I think an open door is in the New Testament sense. In fact, Paul, in Colossians 4, he prays like this. He says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul says, would you pray for a door to be open for the word? And what he says that, he says that in light of the fact that he himself has been imprisoned. Implying that he doesn't have the freedom to go about. He doesn't have the liberty to go about. People have put restrictions on him. And now he's not able to fully preach the gospel in all these places and all these ways like he wants to. I think it's very similar to what he says in 2 Thessalonians 3. Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread ahead, uh, speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. I, I think that's what Paul has in mind when he says an open door. Would you pray that, uh, that, that we would be delivered from the restrictions and from the hindrances and from the obstacles... That these wicked and evil men are putting in our place, uh, putting in our way. Come back to 1 Corinthians 16, and Paul speaks about an open door of effective 
service that has been given to him, provided for him in the city of Ephesus. And you you turn with me over to the book of Acts 19, because I think we get some sense when we look into the, the book of Acts, we get some sense of what Paul is talking about. In light of what we have read about open doors, in light of how we have seen it associated with prison and persecution and hindrance. You come and you begin to read the book of Acts in chapter 19. And you read about Paul's ministry in Ephesus and how it unfolded. He came to the city. You remember uh, to a city that was filled with idolatry and filled with immorality. It was, of course, the center of the worship of of uh, uh, the major temple of Diana, which was associated with all kinds of, of uh, immorality and temple prostitution. And on top of that, this was, for lack of a better word, a vast occultic society. There were tons of people who in the darkness of this city had given themselves over to the practice of magic. They were... They were Uh, seeking after incantations and spells. In fact, they had accumulated libraries of books given to magic. And Paul comes into this city of idolatry and immorality and occultic activity, and he begins to preach the gospel like he does in most places, in the one place that he thinks he might find the most receptivity, which was the synagogue. And you'll read in verse 8, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now here's Paul, he comes into the city, dark, wicked, occultic, and idolatrous city. He goes into the synagogue, and even there, he finds resistance. For three months, he preaches boldly, as strongly as he could. And after finally feeling or, or sensing the rejection or finally being kicked out or whatever it might be, he takes, we're told, those few disciples he has and goes and begins to disciple them in the hall of Tyrannus. Now it's from this, we're told, in verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now we're not told how that was accomplished, how Paul reasoning daily in that public uh, hall of Tyrannus was then responsible for the broadcasting of the gospel in all of modern day Turkey. We assume that it was the disciples he was making who were then in turn going out and preaching in all the places where they were traveling. But before long or before the end of two years, Luke is able to say that the gospel had been preached in all of Asia because of this ministry. But yet still, it was done, if you will, in in the back door or as a byword 
within the community of Ephesus. They were having some success across Asia, but he was still rejected in the town. Until verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the men in whom the evil spirit, the, the man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered, overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Some event, to be sure. But after two years, for some reason, the Lord decided to do this. And it wasn't just this miracle. Because we read of even further works of the Lord in verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord was extolled. Here's Paul for two years. Preaching in some side hall. Because he, he was no longer welcome in the synagogue. He wasn't wanted in the city. And here he is banging and banging and banging away at the ministry. With limited success. At least locally. Until one day things break open. And for whatever reason, the Lord chose after two years to do this extraordinary work through these seven sons of Sceva being beaten up so that out of that, word spread and suddenly a hostile environment becomes a favorable environment. Suddenly, all of those who were standing opposed and speaking evil now were fearful and now they were extolling the name of the Lord. And I believe this is right when Paul was writing the book of Ephesus. I think this was right when he was changing his plans. I would imagine that Paul had previously written to them whenever he was laboring away there in Ephesus, when he wasn't finding much traction, when he was relegated to the sidelines of the city, uh, forced to do his discipleship in the back corners. I would imagine that was the time when Paul said, look, I'm going to go ahead and come over to you because he was thinking in his mind it will probably be more effective. But then at that moment, something changed. At that moment, the Lord opened up a wide open door of ministry and Paul had to adjust himself. He had to adjust his plans. And he had to remain on, he says, until Pentecost now. He had to remain on perhaps another year and stay there in Ephesus doing ministry because of how circumstances had changed. This is Paul's open door. And you have to understand, when he says now an open door, it wasn't like Paul had come to the city and sort of surveyed the territory and decided, you know, this might be kind of rough, this group of this people that I'll be ministering. They, they, they might ridicule me. They might mock me. They might reject me. So I'm just going to sort of sit over here quietly and pray for the Lord to open up a door. 
I'm just going to sort of ask the Lord to just open up and make it obvious and make it easy and make it grand like a big open pasture. And I'll just walk in there and pick all the low hanging fruit. Now, when Paul talked about an open door, you have to understand that it was a door that he was already beating on. It was a door that he was already pushing on. It was a door that he was already striving to get through. This was the Apostle Paul, whenever he spoke about open doors, he wasn't speaking about ministry that was easy or ministry that that lacked any kind of resistance or ministry that somehow wasn't going to be uncomfortable or ministry that was only going to be safe or ministry that was only going to protect his reputation. When he talked about an open door, he talked about a door that he was pushing on. He wanted the Lord to remove the obstacles that he himself was already coming against. And this is what happens in his life. This is what happens in his ministry. The Lord breaks open the heart of these people. And we go on reading there in Acts 19. That many of those who who were believers came confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them. And it came up to 50,000 pieces of silver so the word of the lord continued to increase and prevail mightily complete change of circumstances complete change of circumstances and guess what it would have never happened it would have never happened if paul hadn't been beaten on the door if paul had come into the city and decided it was too tough if he'd come into the city and decided it was too dark It was going to be too painful, require too much sacrifice. There was going to be too much rejection, too much ridicule. People would think ill of him. People would ostracize him. People would sideline him. If that was Paul's attitude, he would have given up long before the two years ever passed. And the door would have never, ever opened. Paul understood it wouldn't be forever. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, a wide open door for effective service has been given to us, but there are many adversaries. See, an open door wasn't the absence of hostility. An open door wasn't an open welcome by everyone. It was simply an opportunity. It was simply an opportunity. Someone has said that the difference between a pessimist and an optimist is a pessimist sees a problem in every opportunity and a Optimist sees an opportunity in every problem. This is the Apostle Paul. He looked out and he saw opportunity. And he pressed through the difficulty and he pressed through the sacrifice and he pressed through the pain and he pressed through all of that stuff, giving the Lord a chance to do something amazing, to open up a door. And that's the sad thing is that so many people in their view of ministry, never have the opportunity to see the Lord do anything like that because they never bother to push. They never go to the difficult circumstances. They never deal with the difficult people. They never put themselves at risk. They never lay everything on the line. They never give the Lord opportunity. In fact, this is one of the benefits, if you could summarize it in two ways, Two benefits, if you will, of 
of pressing on these doors and asking the Lord to open them is, first of all, the opportunity to see the Lord do amazing things. It's the opportunity to see the Lord do amazing things. You put yourself in difficult circumstances. You put yourself in trying circumstances, impressing circumstances, and circumstances where you're stretched beyond your resources. And you put yourself in a place where God can do amazing things. And secondly, you put yourself in this position where you're pushing on on open doors. You allow yourself A tremendous opportunity to grow. A tremendous opportunity to grow. To trust God like you don't have to do right now. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.9, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the difficulty that came to us in Asia, that we were so utterly burdened beyond strength, we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received a sentence of death But that was what God was using to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You ever been that place? Have you ever served the Lord in such a in such a reckless fashion that you felt like you had reached the point of death? Paul says we got there, but we got there for a purpose. We got there for a reason. So that we would rely on God. Who raises the dead. This is Abraham right. Abraham called out to serve the Lord. To sacrifice his son. He goes out there. And he follows in obedience to God. Because he believes that God could even raise from the dead his son. This is the kind of faith. Of those who serve the Lord. You know you might be one of those people. Pressing. Pushing. Um, banging on a door, trying to have the door open. You're trying to force your way into some area of ministry. And what you'll find is the Lord opens a wide open, effective door of service. Because in that particular setting, it's the only door for someone to go through. In that particular setting, you might be the only light You might be the only voice who is speaking the gospel. You might be the only person willing to go into that situation and to bang on that door and to push hard and to pray that God would open. You might be the only person. And so when God does open the door, it may very well be a flood because everyone he wants to save in that area, they only got one place to go. There's only one person opening. There's only one person speaking. These are all the things that we miss when we sit back and we think that somehow God is supposed to provide ministry for us on some silver platter. When we think that somehow ministry is supposed to come to us easy, when we're sitting around and just waiting for someone to come and ask us how to be a Christian, instead of going out there and banging and pressing and pushing, speaking this is the apostle paul this is what made him so effective he knew at times he had to adjust but while he was moving through his plan he was seizing 
every opportunity to be used by the Lord. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this reminder and so thankful for the grace that you brought to us who were locked away, as it were, in the prison cell of our own sin. We're thankful for those who came beating on the door for us, for those who spoke the truth, for those who gave us the word. For, Lord, for that, Lord, we want to give you thanks for opening up a door for us to come through. We pray that you would help us now to be ministers willing to do the same. Help us, Lord, to be effective. Help us to be good planners, but help us at the same time not to be driven by any plan that we make, but by every gospel opportunity that presents itself. Make us, Lord, effective, abounding servants of the Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.